Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. We are here in episode 61, reading chapters 15 through 17 of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. Who are you? I'm Liz. I'm the Duchess. I'm Chad. I'm the Duke. And let me tell you real quickly, Liz, about our spoiler policy, because I feel like it's important that you, Liz, know what our spoiler policy is going to be. Well, I am a dumbass sometimes, Chad. So. <laughs> you didn't have to take it there. <laughs> I do need to be reminded about these things. As I was saying, I have not read these books ever. Complete rookie, Cosmere Virgin. You are a veteran of the Brandon Sanderson world and have read everything the man's ever written, including several grocery lists that he threw in the trash. We don't need to get into that. Is this or is this not accurate? This is accurate. So we are, part of this podcast is that we liked Chad to experience this story unspoiled. So we are not going to spoil anything on this podcast past chapter 17. Listen, I was spoiled a long time ago, and it has nothing to do with this podcast. I think we should coin the term Cosmergen, though. Really? Cosmergen? It's when when your experience of the Cosmere is Cosmergent? No, it's when you're a Cosmere virgin. No, I, yeah, okay. Oh. <laughs> I got that. Think but... on it, listeners. Get back to us. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I can make a t-shirt. That's all I'm saying. We'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. See what we can come up with. All right. So this week we are going through chapters 15 through 17. Our next book club is going to cover chapters 18 through 22. Nice. So last week, after we wrapped the podcast, mm-hmm. you apparently stayed up all night reading this section. I did, yes. I, I read it all in one stupid sitting <laughs> until so, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I don't know that I have yet to recover. <laughs> Can I conclude that you liked it? Yeah, I enjoyed this section. It was a good section. I, I f- we're starting to get a little bit more to chew upon. So it's it's getting interesting, and and Kaladin was less stupid in this section, in my opinion. We had so, a mild disagreement last week. We had a mild disagreement. You took it personally after I mean, the podcast. Maybe a little. <laughs> I'm glad you come around to my well, way of thinking. Well, I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> you weren't going to feed me. <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> So, chapter 15, if you're ready to jump into the chapters. Yeah, let's do it. It's called The Decoy. And we begin, as we have all the chapters in this section, with a a segment of a letter. And I thought I would go ahead and read the letter so far. Everything that we have. Oh, yes, please. The letter so far goes like this. Old friend, 
I hope this missive finds you well. Though as you are now essentially immortal, I would guess that wellness on your part is something of a given. I realize that you are probably still angry. That is pleasant to know. Much as your perpetual health, I've come to rely upon your dissatisfaction with me. It is one of the Cosmere's great constants, I should think. Let me first assure you that the element is quite safe. I have found a good home for it. I protect its safety like I protect my own skin, you might say. You do not agree with my quest. I understand that, so much as it is possible to understand someone with whom I disagree so completely. Might I be frank? Before, you asked why I was so concerned. It is for the following reason. Bum, bum, bum. May I be That's frank? That's all we've read so far. Your butt smells like biscuit flour. That's for the other podcast. I do not like you, sir. <laughs> so that's the letter that we've read so far. And again, in sec- all of part one, we had quotes from dying people. All of part two, we've had snippets of this letter. We do not know who it was to or from, but probably it's going to be something important later down the line. Probably, yeah. I feel like I can safely say it was written by somebody uptight. I think that was just the way I read it. No, no, <laughs> no. That's just how I talk sometimes, Chad. It's just how I talk. God. All right, so let's talk about some chapter 15. Chapter 15 is called The Decoy. In this chapter, Adeline and Dalinar sort out the chaos of the battle's aftermath. Together, they begin to investigate Elicar's broken saddle strap. Sadius is a real prick. But we learn a bit about why Dalinar trusts him. Wit shows up and taunts Sadius. Before we go any further, I just have a story to tell you. Okay. There's a a friend of ours who listens to the podcast who I I called this week. And I I called her and I said, hey, how you doing? And I swear she didn't even say hello. She just went, it's Sadius. (laughs) (laughs) So we apologize, audiobook listeners who had to hear us. Say Sadius. It's so sad. For like an hour straight. That's a terrible name. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not. Yeah, we were right. We're better at this than he is. Sadius. Sadius. That's bullshit. I guess Thaddeus is a real name. It is. I mean, I guess anything's a real name. A gloopzort's a real name if you use it right. Buttercup biscuit flour. That's right. <laughs> it doesn't smell as good as you would think it would. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So this chapter, this was hard to kind of come up with a plot summary because it's pages and pages go by. It's a lot of inner reflection and dialogue. Not a whole lot happens. They're basically, in the last section, they had this huge battle with a chasm fiend that went awry. A bunch of men died. And one of the bridges that they used to get there was destroyed. So in this chapter, they're just kind of standing around waiting for a bridge crew to come and treating their wounded. But we learn a lot more about the interactions and really kind of how the Alethi nobility function. Yeah, I think the name the decoy is interesting to explore here for a couple of reasons. One, because it's been 61 podcast episodes, and I still haven't learned the lesson that you have to pay attention to the stupid name of the chapter. And I found out the name of the chapter was called The Decoy when you said it two minutes ago. (laughs) But if you think about it, you have to 
you know, when I heard it, my first thought was, okay, well, who's the decoy? What's the decoy, right? So is it the decoy is the chasm fiend because they came out here to hunt the chasm fiend, but really it was about trapping Vema. Or Vama. Whatever. Whatever. Or is it that the chasm fiend was a distraction because the Parshendi knew they would come out here and there's some other left hook waiting for us that we don't know about? So my take is that the the title refers to um, Sadius because the really the crux of this chapter is that relationship between Dalinar and Sadius and Adeline trying to understand that. Mm-hmm. So so Adeline is like, he's really fixated on Sadius. Sadius is like outwardly taunting Dalinar even after the battle, even after Dalinar shows this incredibly heroic show of strength and saves the king's life by single-handedly catching the claw of the chasm fiend. Sadius is right in there, just putting him down, putting him down. And Dalinar doesn't care. It's driving Adeline crazy. And so Dalinar finally explains to Adeline why he trusts Sadius. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to the night the king died, Sadius was the decoy. Yeah. So I think that's what a chapter title for me um, why it's called that because Sadius was the one who put on the king's robes and his crown and was ushered out in the place of the king and almost worked. If you remember back yeah, way did, back yeah. to the prelude, mm-hmm. Seth almost went after him mm-hmm. and certainly would have killed him, allowing the king to escape. Yeah. So really for Dalinar, that was an incredibly brave thing to do. And it's one of the reasons that he trusts Sadius. And the other is that after that night, he and Sadius, kind of made a, a vow that they were going to protect Elokar together and that they still do that, even though they are completely at cross purposes in most ways. But when it comes to keeping the king safe and the kingdom unified, they do come together and they do that in their manipulation of Vama. Vama, I don't know. <laughs> but um, they, they manipulate him because he's been complaining against the king and complaining about having to use the soul casters and Sadius turns around and decides to double the price that he charges him for wood at the same time that Dalinar comes in and reminds him how lucky he is to be able to use soul casters because now he's going to have to use them to make wood to build the barracks in his war camps. Yep. So that makes a lot more sense than all the stupid things that I was thinking But your of. thing's good, too. <laughs> So I had a few notes in this chapter. Okay. At the end of our last podcast and the last section that we read, it was, you know, throughout the fight with the chasm fiend. And in the beginning, they talked about, oh, no, he's climbing the wrong plateau. He's going to kill all the babes, you know, and (laughs) and not the babes, not the babes, save the box wine, you know, so we knew that there were going to be casualties there. And I thought that that would be more something that would be discussed more and it wasn't in that section. So I thought, well, it'll be discussed more in this section. So the chapter opens up talking about their dead and like 50 dead, but it's like 50 people died. My dad was over here talking to the King and just rolls on. Like it's not that big of a deal. And I'm trying to figure out, is it because is this just the voice of the Alethi? And that they just don't give a shit? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. 
pretty much. And in fact, we see probably hours after this horrific attack, we see most of the noblemen lounging around drinking wine, like partying it up. And Adeline and Dalinar are the only ones going around seeing to the wounded, seeing to to even figure out how many people died. You know, the first yeah. casualty report came to the king and it says right out that he just brushed it off. Yeah, you know, yeah, that was the other thing I noticed too. The, yeah. the Alethi version of the afterlife is a battle. So they believe that the truly brave, the truly valiant um, get to join the heralds that have departed in a fight to take back the Tranquilin Halls from the Voidbringers. So let me guess what's inside of the Tranquilin Halls. Guess. 72 virgins. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Chris Pine's butthole. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been funnier. That would have been funnier. Several bags of King Biscuit flour. <laughs> Listen, but, you can't stop a man from powdering his butthole. <laughs> if he wants to powder his butthole with biscuit flour, it's not any of your business, Liz. <sighs> but so, yes, for the Alethi to die in battle is like, that's kind of the way you want to go. What if you die a poor scribe just trying to get the last drops out of that box of wine? I mean, it's, I mean, you're not going to get a good spot in the battle. Who's going to mourn the babes? But what about the babes? The babes. Damn it. So, yeah, we definitely see... Um, Adeline and Dalinar are the only ones even working after the attack. And in fact, when Adeline comes to give the final casualty report, he's kind of like bracing himself because he knows he's going to get mocked for even caring yeah. or bringing a report. They're all trying to party, you know, and talking about how many gem hearts they've won. In fact, right after Dalinar, again, heroically, single-handedly saved the king's life, when Dalinar walks up to him after the battle, he's like, so Dalinar, I hear you haven't been winning any gem hearts lately. <laughs> it is the very, hey, uncle, how cool is this guy? <laughs> he, have you seen his boat? It's the biggest boat I've ever seen. Why is your boat so small? <laughs> yes, yeah, so to the Alethi, Everything is a contest, and the ends always justify the means. This is just like seventh grade cafeteria. It pretty much is. Like nothing has changed. Give a bunch of seventh graders magical armor and six-foot swords and just see what happens. That's basically what's going on here. The other thing I took note of is Dalinar in his head goes through a long thing of talking about why this six-year-long siege was the perfect idea and how he's got them boxed in on all the sides. They couldn't possibly escape to the south. I think it was the north and the east. And he's got them, you know, in the south and the west, you know, covered with his bases. And uh, they're certainly going to run out of resources. But he didn't count on the gem hearts. Right. I think that he is wholly mistaken in his concept that they are somehow locked in and cannot escape okay i think they are thinking of this thing two-dimensionally and i think the parshendi are thinking of it three-dimensionally 
prediction number one. I love it. That's just setting up my prediction later. Oh, okay. That's just... That's a pre-prediction? It's giving you a taste. A little taste? Yeah. All right. When you... Before you lay the biscuits down, you gotta... Gotta dust? You gotta dust. The Duke and Duchess podcast are brought to you by King Biscuit Flour. (laughs) That's not a thing. It is a thing. It is? King Biscuit Flour? You've never listened to the King Biscuit Flower Hour? I don't. I what don't think kind that's of a, a hippie thing, are Chad? you? Listeners, chime in. Have you heard of something called a King Biscuit Flower Hour? Because I don't think that's a thing. Well, let's talk for a minute about Sadius and Dalinar. Because one thing that I thought was really interesting. Boring. That's it. <laughs> Go home. (laughs) Just go home. I've been messing with you all night. Oh, it's just not fair. No, go ahead. I'm teasing. Go ahead. I said last time that I thought Sadius. It's really that I can't say Sadius. It's driving me nuts. Anyway, I said last time that I thought Sadius was not as terrible as we were sort of initially making him out so this was was an enjoyable section to get a little bit more complexity in these characters and their relationship it's really sort of the first in my opinion or from what i've caught so far it's the first sort of depth to any of these characters first time we've had a chance to kind of get below the layers and really get into some some more of the motivations Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing, what I thought was interesting was their conversation about the bridge crews. Because yeah. Elicar starts giving Dalinar a hard time for not getting gem hearts. Uh, Dalinar just doesn't care about the gem hearts. He doesn't care about the competition that the high princes have with each other. And Elicar says to him, well, you're not fast enough. You should use bridge crews the way that Sadius does. Dalinar uses Chull pulled wheeled bridges which take a very long time to get across the plateaus so basically what the alethi are doing are they have these guys up in these towers they spot when a chasm fiend begins to build a chrysalis and pupate when it's vulnerable and then they race to see who can get there first and whichever high prince gets there first gets to fight the parshendi and get the gem heart dalinar could care less about any of that crap so he doesn't even try and this is why he's been losing face to all the other high princes. But they so but they get into why Sadius does things the way he does. And it's what we speculated, which is that he puts these bridge crews out there. He puts out more than he needs. He doesn't give them armor. And it's a very tempting target for the Parshendi. So the Parshendi are shooting at them, not at his soldiers. Now, Ka- you know, Kaladin hasn't figured this out yet, but it's you can tell that he's sort of Starting to think along those lines. But it's just such an interesting character study of, you know, for these people, that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It completely makes sense. They have a very mercenary mindset. And when you have these people who half of the population can't read or do any kind of academic study at all, their only purpose is to fight and win battles. That's it. Like win contests. That's what Alethi males do. And it's just so interesting to see what kind of culture arises out of that. A stupid one. Pretty stupid, right? Yeah. But Dalinar, and I thought it was interesting that he, you know, he's talked about 
this book, The Way of Kings, and he tells Adeline that he's had it read to him a few times. This is the book that his brother, the king, had discovered right before his death, and he became very obsessed with it. And then we find at the end that Dalinar's actually had it read to him every single day, so so much so that he's got parts of it memorized. It makes me think that the Parshendi just want the Alethi to be stupid and warring amongst themselves, and anytime they get unified or start to do things in a way beyond that, you know, that gets them into maybe the ninth grade cafeteria, they're going to do everything they can to sabotage. By the way, the ninth grade cafeteria sucked too. But, you know, in this whole thing with the chasm fiends and running out to get the gem hearts, there's a part of me that has to wonder if the Parshendi aren't just sitting there laughing at the whole thing. Now, clearly they send men in there to die. It is serious to them, but I feel like they're, they're playing this game on a completely different level than the Alethi are. What I thought was interesting in this conversation about the bridge crews is that the Parshendi don't shoot at the Knights. They only care about killing the bridge crews. They just want to inflict casualties without any regard to whether the casualties are strategically or tactically significant in the moment. It's just how many bodies can we kill? And even their own dead, they just leave out on the plane to rot. The number of deaths that they inflict seems to be a priority to them without regard to whose death it is. It's true. The Parshendi don't seem to understand the tactical advantage of an armored soldier over a bridge crew. And so they, they go for the easiest target. Or well, I guess my question is, is it because they don't understand it or is it because, or is it they're, they fully understand it and they're doing it anyway? Well, I don't think we know at this point. I speculate that it's the latter. I don't have a good reason for why they would do that. My initial thought was that they were shoving the bodies down in the chasms to try to feed the chasm fiends. Hmm. And they were like, we're just going to shove all the bodies down there and feed the, the chasm fiends. But later we find out in chapter 17 that the Alethi come and burn their dead. Yes, they do. They do go back for the dead. After they loot them, then they burn them. Yeah. So... It sounds like that may not be the case. Let's talk for a minute about the Alethi War Codes, because that's been mentioned a bunch of times. And I think there's even an illustrated page in the book uh, of uh, several of these yeah. War Codes. So the War Codes are something that Gavilar, the old king, kind of discovered and got really into right before his death. And apparently he got very strange right before his death. Uh, the Codes are a very un-Alethi, or at least current Alethi way of thinking. Mm -hmm. They are very much about um, leadership. Um, a soldier should never be drunk. He should always be ready for battle. An officer should always be in uniform, that kind of thing. And Dalinar has been since his brother's death, following these war codes and making everyone under his command follow them as well. Something that I found interesting that we learn in this chapter is that Gavilar's last words to his brother, not his written words, but his mm -hmm. last words to his brother were, brother, 
Follow the codes tonight. There is something strange upon the winds. Now, if you remember in the last interlude with Seth, he referred to himself as a wind runner. Mm. So I don't know. Is That's that- right. Mm-hmm. He did. He did. That sneaky bastard. Shin bastard. Running right. Honey, that's racist. He's not real. He still has feelings. Okay. He's running right on the wind, though. Oh, yeah. So I didn't. Ca- I hadn't caught that before. Don't know if it was on purpose. Mm, yeah, Just I, thought it was cool. I did not pick up on that either. So a couple of other things I noted. Vema has a habit of squinting. Is he losing his eyesight? Don't know. Don't know. Don't know if it matters. No, no idea. Even Dalinar's horse is a stuffed shirt. So, you know, I don't think we talked about the Rashadium last time when no, we introduced we to yeah, them. Yeah. So the Rashadium are some kind of, they're kind of like the... Like Shadowfax? Is that what you're... The Miras, yeah. Okay. Anyway, mythical horses. With personalities. With personalities. The Rashadium are the, the mythical horses of... Alethkar, they are bigger, they're stronger, they're smarter, they can they follow vocal commands, and they have to accept a rider. So they, they kind of bond with a rider and have to accept them. And Dalinar's horse won't eat any extra rations if he does not feel like he deserves it. Isn't that adorable? No. What? <laughs> no. It's adorable. It's ridiculous. No. I don't think I did well enough on the field today. <laughs> I'm going to eat my portion of grass, and that's all I'm going to eat. <laughs> if Dalinar doesn't come and scratch me behind the ears, Don't I'm just going to run off a cliff. Smack talk gallant. My gosh. <laughs> all my favorites are smack talking. We also see wit in this chapter, and there's some humorous dialogue. There's definitely some insulting going on. <laughs> insulting. He says, my job is to give insults. Your job is to be in sluts. Like burn. Oh, but my, my favorite part, one of my favorite parts you of this on chapter. Twitter. He does. Does Wit have a Twitter? Someone make Wit a Twitter, please. But one of my favorite parts of this chapter is when he says, uh, well, at first he says to Sadius, can you, if you speak, if you could speak and say nothing ridiculous, then I'll leave you alone for a whole week. And of course, Sadius, you know, says something and he goes right back at him. And But then he turns to Renarin, who, if you remember, he usually leaves alone. But in the last chapter, kind of got a couple of digs in. And when Dalinar had a problem with it, he said, that one's stronger than you think. And and, and I, I, I'm teasing him for a reason. So in this chapter, he turns to Renarin and says, what do you think, Renarin? Can you speak and say nothing ridiculous? And Renarin says, nothing ridiculous. Except he says it like this. Nothing ridiculous. <laughs> that's how, yes, that's exactly how I picture Renarin. Straight out of a Wes Anderson flick. <laughs> Super awkward. Bull haircut. Yes, and once again, it's mentioned that Wit has a strange air about him. It's the um, flower particles. <laughs> All right, are you ready for chapter 16? We are. Let's do it. What's this one called? It's you called, know I don't know. It's called Cocoons. Oh, okay. 
So it's a flashback that's seven and a half years before the current time. In this flashback, Kaladin is talking to his childhood friend, Laurel, about his father's plan to send him to Carbranth. In the last flashback, we learned that his father wants him to travel to Carbranth to be a surgeon. Laurel is the daughter of Bright Lord Wistolo, the local light-eyed lord. She wants Kaladin to join the army instead so that he can win a shard blade and become a light-eyes. Kaladin doesn't understand why, because 12-year-old boys are dumbasses. Yes. The pair are hunting lurgs with Kaladin's brother Tien when they happen upon some older boys who are practicing with quarterstaffs. They Tyler Durden the heck out of him, and he's never felt more alive. He asks Jost, the oldest, to train him. Arriving home, he finds that Wistolo is dead and has left them a pile of spheres. Well done. Thank you. Well done. First rule of quarterstaff practice is... <laughs> there is no quarterstaff practice. <laughs> not, for, not for Kaladin, there wasn't. No, there isn't. So we get a lot of character insight in this chapter. We do. And it's interesting because at this stage... Kaladin has a very idealized view of light eyes and he's he's kind of looking at Laurel she's got light green eyes and he he just thinks there really is something different about that something so special so special right in this area <laughs> you can't she's, tell that I'm gesturing in my chest yeah <laughs> except he would have been like there's something so special in this area and it was me and it's me gesticulating around my left hand left hand right but we also, this is a, we, we've talked about Kaladin having depression before, but we find in this that this is something that's occurred since his childhood, that he gets these, these times of having dreary feelings, um, just waves of blackness that just come and go. It's called testosterone, man. Get used to it. His younger brother, Tien, always seems to be able to cheer him up and pull him out of his black moods. Mm-hmm. We also find that Kaladin um, doesn't have the best social skills. No, he puts his foot in his mouth many times in this. One of the things I've enjoyed about Kaladin's character so far, though, is is that you get to see him kind of stumble and make stupid mistakes, mm -hmm. but learn from them. Right. You know, both in the present and in the past, because how he interacts with these boys is just... Is just not very smart, but but even in in the flashback, he's like, "Oh, that was the wrong thing to say." Right. It helps when you're getting a quarterstaff to the ribs. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have been such a smart ass. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but you know, this is a kid who, because of his eye color, is never going to be truly a part of the upper class and yet he's not truly a part of the working class or the lower class either you know the other boys refer to him they go they start talking about this phenomenon of a dark eyes winning a shard blade and becoming a light eyes and they say and we're talking about a real dark eyes like us not like you yeah so this is a kid who's uh, he's of what's called the second non of which that's you can only go one non higher, pretty much. Uh, he's educated. His father is a surgeon, and he spends all of his time learning medicine. So he's not out in the field. He's never played with these kids. He complains that his parents gave him a light eyes name. His name isn't that like monosyllabic name that all the other kids have. I actually just caught in the next chapter was the first time that I realized that the light eyes... And the dark eyes have different names, either mono or dual syllabic. 
you know, Dunny or Lorg or whatever, you know. And the Bright Eyes have these three and four syllable names. Yeah, so basically, he's not like the other boys. He's not like the other boys. He doesn't spend his days worming. He's not out there farming. He's sensitive. (laughs) And Laurel likes it. Oh, she likes him so much. My favorite line in the whole thing is um, when she puts her hand out to get down from the rocks. And he's like, you're better at climbing the rocks than me. And she's like, it's polite, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I I had to just pause and clap. Bravo, Brandon Sanderson. (laughs) Bravo. It's like you've spent time around 12-year-old girls. (laughs) Pretty much. Right. And then, you know, she's the one who eggs him on to go over and see what these boys are doing and... And um, she's also the one who causes him to get his ass beat, too. Exactly. Because she starts making fun of the oldest boy who's bragging that his father had won a shard blade, but got it stolen away from him. And she laughs and she says, you know, you tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him. And uh, and Kaladin's like, well, he may have had some sort of trauma induced hallucinations, you know, (laughs) she's like, my friend Kaladin said he can beat all your asses. And then we end the chapter on kind of a plot twist. Yeah, we find out that Wistiao, I think is how you say it. Wistolo. Wistolo, whatever. Wistolo, who is the the bright eyes of the town, is dead. Now, that is Laurel's father, right? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. So, a couple things that I noted about the chapter, starting at the end, since we're talking about it. Uh, it was interesting to me that when Wistolo died, the Kaladin's first thoughts weren't, oh my God, Laurel's father's dead. Like that never really came up. It, uh, he, that's one of his thoughts. Is it? Okay. Yeah, he says, what, what's going to happen to Laurel? Okay, I missed yeah. it then. Okay. I was like, damn, this guy, you know, is just another, like all the other Alethi. But okay, so I missed that. I also noticed couple of other things uh the presence of the storms makes ocean travel very dangerous now we know that there are islands around the continent that people can get to but if there was another continent a thousand miles away it's possible that nobody would know because nobody would be able to return likely with the story so we don't really know kind of what's out there in the ocean other than the storms come from there also, back seven and a half years before the current time, Amaram's army was an enemy of Jacoved. So there were two Alethi uh, territories that were fighting with each other. So Jacoved is its own kingdom. Okay. Actually. Is it not part of the Alethi? It's not. No. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. Didn't know that. Okay. That makes more sense. And the other part that I thought was interesting was the part about the snarl brush. Oh, I've wrote down notes about that, too. That is interesting. So he says, but now the snarl brush was dead. Pulling together hadn't been enough for it. Later, he says, the brush wasn't dead. It had just dried out, waiting for the storms to come. And I think there's some symbolism here. And I think the snarl brush are supposed to be the dark-eyed people of Roshar. And 
they're not inferior to light eyes. They're just waiting for the storm to come, but not the storms that we see, the wind storms, but for the broken one to unleash, for the void bringers to come, some great cataclysmic thing is going to bring back their power and restore them to greatness. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm holding two fists in the air. <laughs> the dark-eyed soul that I am. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. I, I think that the snarl brush is definitely symbolic here. Um, and, I, and I think it's symbolic of Kaladin himself, too. You know, because through this whole chapter, he's in the middle of this depressive episode, and he's looking, he's, and at one point his little brother comes over, he's like, what are you looking at? And he's like, dead bushes. He's <laughs> <laughs> staring at it. And so uh, one thing that's so amazing about these books are the the explanations of how life has evolved to cope with these high storms. Yeah. And all of the different creatures have their own adaptive mechanisms. So the snarl brush basically just binds itself to these massive trees that are covered in stone. So their bark is stone and the snarl brush just binds really close together. And he's looking at this bush and he thinks it's dead. And he's like, well, even, even binding together isn't, didn't help it. And you know, that made me think about, you know, Kaladin's relationships with the other villagers and mm-hmm. how the villagers, you know, they really have to bind together to survive themselves. And they were, you know, you can tell that a lot of people probably still die in these high storms, no matter how prepared they are. Kaladin talked about how in a recent high storm, the ground where they were had been smashed by something huge. They don't even know what it just, it's cracked like a plate and how that's pretty common, and it could have been someone's house. So they really have to, they have these tight-knit little feudal communities where we, we talked before about how they can't even travel. They have to yeah. move up certain social ranks to be able to leave their home village. So they, they bind together and, and look, but they're all dead on the outside hmm. and, until the storm comes, and then they show life. Symbolism is dead sexy. I love it. And and I thought too the lurg was kind of symbolic as well, and I think that's you know why the, the I felt chapter... like the lurg was meant to be some symbolic, and I just didn't get it. So the lurg is a little that well the the chapter is called cocoons, and I think the lurg is kind of symbolic of Kaladin as well, you know, because we see him in this chapter especially, the seed of something getting planted. So the lurg is like a slug. It's like a hoppy, bouncy little slug. It's like and, a frog with its eyes on its back. Yeah. And six legs. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, when, the, there's no, when there's no rainstorm, so nothing for it to eat, it spins this hard cocoon out of like its spit or something. I don't know. Mm. But if you get it wet, the cocoon dissolves, and then the lurg bounces all around looking for food until it realizes that... You're just jerking its chain, and then it spins the cocoon up again. Been a real asshole, TN. But again, the idea of these this this adolescent boy who doesn't fit in anywhere, kind of having a cocoon around himself, Mm -hmm. is I thought that was symbolic. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Did you catch that the storms all come from the same direction? Oh yeah several notes about them coming right. from the origin and i even sort of looked at the map and you can sort of see that where the shattered planes are are 
just about the easternmost place on the continent. So it's as though something came from the east, shattered the ground, and that's where we have the shattered plane. So whatever is out there in the origin, I have a theory about it. And so the Alethi think of themselves as being, you know, the biggest and the baddest, and they call themselves the Stormlands. So the storms hit them first, mm-hmm. and they kind of break the wind for the other countries that are yeah, they farther because they stink to the west <laughs> they've been breaking wind all over the rest of roshar but that's so that's a huge part of their culture they stink to breaking join up wind <laughs> and again everything about them their their religion um it just everything is is set up to reinforce this feudalistic society so they talked about the ardents in this and how they they come through and um, everyone is supposed to pick a calling, I guess. And and mm-hmm. a calling is not just your job. It's it's how you express your religion or your devotion to Voranism. And they go through and they talk about how important it is to be a farmer. And if you're a farmer, it's important to be a farmer. It's important not to do anything outside of your calling. Yeah. So everything works together to reinforce this caste system that they yeah. have. Now, one other thing I noted, and I don't know if it means anything, but Laurel's hair, Laurel, however you say it, her hair is black with golden streaks. The same kind of hair that uh, Adolin has, which reminds me there was something very important that we didn't talk about in the last chapter, so I'm going to bring it up here because it's somewhat germane to what we're talking about. But I don't know if the hair thing has any relevance i even thought is it possible this is adolin's mother but no the ages couldn't possibly line up so it's not that and there have been other people mentioned as having the same black and gold hair so it doesn't seem like it's super uncommon Uh, but it did cross my mind as something to pay attention to but there was something in the last chapter that we forgot to talk about that i think is significant and that is that dalinar cannot remember the Adolin's mother. That's right. Yes, that was in chapter 16. And I did have a note about that. 15, we, but that, yeah. We skipped it, yeah. Yeah. So, but not like, like I get that he was apparently drunk a lot, but that doesn't seem no, like slightly he, even reasonable. He can't remember her name. Yeah, and like in memories that he has where she's there she's just like a smudge on the page like he cannot remember anything about her that's weird yeah that makes no sense yeah i mean you see that in real life like to a much smaller degree like hey don't you remember me telling you about the kids soccer practice tonight yeah (laughs) Or No, I don't remember, but not like to not remember an entire person. Yeah, that's, that's well, not just to not remember an entire person, because I had people come up to me in college and be like, do you remember me from high mm-hmm. school? And me be like, no. <laughs> that's true. I do that all the time. No, I don't. Sorry. Like, yeah, but no, I didn't. So, but this is someone he married and had a child with. Two children. Well, yeah, I didn't know if Renarin was from the same mother or not, 
but I mean, that's ridiculous. So can't think that that has anything other than a metaphysical origin of some kind. We would have been remiss if we did not bring that up. It's a good thing to bring up. Let's move on to chapter 17. I am so ready to move on to chapter 17. It's called A Bloody Red Sunset. It was. It was. In this chapter, Kaladin meets with an apothecary to get bandages and antiseptic. It is 10 days pay for one small jar of antiseptic. He heads back disappointed and bridge four has a bridge run. Kaladin chooses to run at the front. On the battlefield, he saves several wounded bridgemen to the amazement of his crew and the consternation of Gaz. Oh, Gaz. He's such a dick. He's such a dick. Yeah, so that's kind of what happens in the plot. I enjoyed this chapter overall. This was sort of Kaladin's trying to gain some sort of charismatic influence over his men, but actually starting to do it the right way. Because nobody wants to listen to you when you stand in front of them and say, you assholes are going to do something that I want to do that you don't want to do. Like, nobody's going to listen to you. But when you start making sacrifices on your own to help them, now all of a sudden people will start hearing what you want to what you want to say. So this is him sort of figuring that out. Not to mention being crazy brave. Not to mention us finding out that he's a surge binder in training. Well, and I think the difference between Kaladin's leadership in this chapter and in the previous chapters were that he was trying to run his bridge crews the way that he did his squad. Which makes sense. Back when he was a squad leader. Of course. So I think what we have to remember is that when Kaladin was a squad leader, he was Kaladin Stormblessed. People wanted to be in his squad. And like he says in that chapter, they also had farther down to go. So he could motivate them to do what was best for them by kind of being hard on them. They didn't come to his squad wanting to do PT, but he knew that that's what they needed. They were going to need to be able to work hard if they were going to survive. So he came in to this bridge crew and tried to do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it didn't work because these guys on the bridge crew, they have no farther to go. That's it. They're, there's nothing else that can be done to them. But you're right. When he does start leading by example and serving, being doing that kind of servant leadership, that's what starts to see results. Yeah, and I just think it's good writing to show a character kind of stumble through the initial process, yeah. you know, yeah. which you don't often get to see in a lot of fantasy novels, partic- particularly kind of in the beginning stages and with the the protagonist, you know? Right. So I, I think it's just, it was enjoyable to kind of watch that yeah. change in that formation. I agree. And I like the juxtaposition of childhood Kaladin and what we learn about him there and seeing him kind of first pick up a weapon for the first time to then seeing him in this chapter kind of come into his own again as a leader when he chooses to ride at the front at the most dangerous spot and saves Rock's life by doing that pretty much. Cause I think the other two, yeah, everybody who, else around everyone him else around him died. Yeah. Rock is the first one that he really wins over because as soon as the battle is over, 
Kaladin goes out and starts trying to save some of the wounded and everyone else is cowering. There's still arrows coming down. You know, everyone else is hiding behind rocks. Kaladin is stumbling around and Rock is the one who comes out and help, starts helping him. Yeah, absolutely. Carry the bodies off. Yeah, absolutely. And then Teft is the second. Mm-hmm who starts actually helping him. And this is, you could tell this is kind of going to be a turning point for these men. Oh yeah, without a doubt. The other thing too is, how is it that he manages to survive? Oh, how does he manage to survive? Well, I don't know, probably because he had a pocket full of spheres Mm -hmm. filled with stormlight, and at the end of the battle, they were all done. Yep. And he talks about uh, how he had this strange, irrational, unexplainable energy mm-hmm. that allowed him to survive, just like he, uh, just like he had in a in a lesser degree when he was out there running and run, kind of running out of energy. But he gets, you know, Gaz gives him a pocket full of spheres that are all charged, and within a day, it's been a day, maybe two days, they're all spent because and- he's absorbing the stormlight. And using it. And did you notice that when his bridge approached the Parshendi, they looked surprised? Oh, yeah. And kind of put down their bows for well, a second? Well, it was not when he approached. It was after they shot and everyone around him died. Mm-hmm. And the arrows, you know, made a, made a Kaladin-shaped outline <laughs> right. in all the people surrounding him. <laughs> you know, it was a, a, like, almost like a cartoon. And then they all went, what? And that was a long a long enough pause to kind of give them the advantage. Oh, and how about Kaladin uh, throwing shade at the squad leader who tries to talk down to him? That's my bridge. (laughs) Treat it like your own. (laughs) Take good care of her. (laughs) But I like that. So Kaladin, you know, they're, they're crossing these plateaus and in between when the bridge crews have time to rest everyone else just kind of collapses and Kaladin's like I'm gonna stand he's standing at parade rest and everyone's kind of making fun of him and so he's getting prouder and prouder but when Sadius goes by he bows not because he wants to but because that's what's best for his men yep so I thought that was kind of cool that he you know he's the self-sacrifice is not just when people are looking it's not a manipulation tech tactic you know yeah, and he understands enough not to be too proud and too stubborn to no end. Right. Now, I do have a question. Okay. So what the hell happens when you push a bridge off of a plateau and the plateau on the other side is higher than your side? So that wouldn't work. Uh, but they have been fighting on these plateaus for six years. So my perception is that they know that they're not just running in a straight line. They they know which ways to go that had because some of the plateaus are, I think, are too big even for the bridges to cross. Yeah. yeah so yeah. but they have maps, so they know kind of which plateaus to cross that's going to work for their bridges. OK, that's my perception. We also get to see somebody die. Yes, we do. Well, several people die, but we get to see it happen. Right. And this is the first time we get to experience somebody having these weird, almost possessed death throes and then dying. Right. 
and it's uh, Gadol or Gadol or whatever right. you say. And he says, they break the land itself. They want it, but in their rage, they will destroy it. Like the jealous man burns his rich things rather than let them be taken by his enemies. They come. <clears throat> and then he dies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very interesting. Something going on there. They will break the land itself. They will shatter it. These planes. These planes, they will shatter. Yep. But who are they? Who are they? Who are these people? We don't know. So we also get to meet some of the crew of Bridge Four. Oh, yeah. Primarily, we have Rock and Teft, who are kind of emerging as second tier characters yeah yeah they're the first ones to sort of come on board right so we have rock who is a horn eater terrible idea he's beefy and tan we get that every time he's described there was a girl back in college we used to call the horn eater was she beefy and tan as well oh yeah (laughs) so it's kind of neat to see that the bridge crew kind of emerging personalities starting to talk to each other. One thing I thought interesting was that Teft knew all of the names. Like they went from not telling each other their names and not even wanting to tell Kaladin their names. They had, their names had to be pried out of them to, you know, now they're in this battlefield situation. They're trying to tend to these wounded and he's like, okay, who's out there? And, and Teft is rattling out all these names. So they went from, not talking to each other at all to kind of knowing the names of everyone on their bridge. Yeah, that's good. And I, I didn't pick up on that specifically Teft's role in it. So the names I'm going to, I'm going to list some of the names here for you. Not all of them, but we have Haber and Corm and Adis and Coral and Dunny and Moash and Narm and Pete <laughs> spelled the most fantasy obnoxious way you could spell the world, the word Pete P E E T. You, I mean, it's a fantasy novel. I don't know what you expect. If he had put in an apostrophe <laughs> between the two E's, that would have been the only way that could have been a more obnoxious spelling of Pete. I'm sorry. You're in the wrong genre. Obnoxious <laughs> spellings are going to bother you. <laughs> Can we talk about what happened in the apothecary? Oh, yeah. First, Sill writes terrible jokes. What does she say? Is he a rot spend, spren a decay spren. In, a, in a man's clothing? Yeah. And I'm like, she's telling yo mama jokes. She, yo mama's so old, she looked like a death spren on a cold day. She's only been sentient for like three days, Chad. <laughs> for yo a ma- break. <laughs> yo mama's so ugly, she looks like three rot spends and sprens in a trench coat. <laughs> yo mama's so dumb that logic spren can't see her. <laughs> So, <laughs> what? oh, Twitter, put that one on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where all, you know, amateur comedians go. <laughs> so the apothecarist can't see the, quote, invisible wind spren. So I, our spren, oh, I, we keep getting into this and, and I, each time we get a little bit more information, but... Man, it's like, it's really drips and drabs. Like, it's it's still not enough to make any sort of conclusions on. But is it that only certain people can see the sprens or 
or only certain people see certain sprens? Like, why is it that, like, I can't remember anybody else ever being able to see Sill. Correct. Sill can only be seen by people she wants to see her. Mm, okay. So Kaladin's really the only one who sees her. So what I question then is, so when they're out there and, like, he's bandaging the guys up and the pain spread is coming up from the ground... I would imagine that everyone is probably seeing the pain spren, but maybe they're not all seeing the same pain spren. Maybe not. And again, you never know what's going... So so, some pain can attract a pain spren, another might not. You just don't... They just don't know. And what I think is interesting is the way that Brandon Sanderson builds this mystery by having these creatures be so commonplace that it doesn't make sense for any of the characters to really explain it any further or to even really kind of understand any more about it. I'm sure they have they have spren specialists and spren scientists, for, but for like most Pokemon people, trainers. it's like gravity. It's like I drop this ball, it falls to the ground. I don't need to, oh my God, Pokemon trainers, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just got that. It's okay. <laughs> but for most people, it's like... they. It, photosynthesis they know what happens they don't really need to explain why it just it just does so what's interesting too in this chapter is we talk a little bit more about how different sill is from other spren you know and and one of the themes that we talk about is the discord that's inherent in humanity because Mm -hmm. people are also different and that's one of the first things that sill and kaladins are talking about yeah, and then she makes a very interesting comment, and she says Spren are all basically virtually the same identical individual. Yeah. Like like the way the sequoias on the West Coast, you can have hundreds of trees, but really it's one organism because yeah. they're all connected through the root systems. Which is why... Or like people who ski in Colorado... It's true. They are all clones. Basically all the same organism. They're all the same organism. If you it's true. If you go to Boulder, Colorado and you run across a person in the street, they will all look identical because cloning. For those of you who have not been to America, take that as fact. <laughs> so that's part of why Sill is struggling so much with the changes that she's going through. Yeah, because you know, she she's points not. out that uh, you know humans all think differently, they act differently, they're individuals. Animals, uh, each kind of animal really tends to act the same way, and spren even more are even have even more homogeneity. You know, they're all basically the same individual. So for her to start thinking and acting like a human, you know, we see every time we see her, she's speaking more coherently she's showing understanding of abstractions she and Kaladin are not any closer to figuring out why that is or what's going on storm's coming Mm-hmm. and if there's one thing you can count on it's greed <laughs> that's right yeah oh that sounds just like that poem I wrote in the ninth grade <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. It's all right. 
So we're well into this book now. What is your overall opinion on the writing so far? It's better than I thought it was going to be. Because I know you were afraid you weren't going to like it. I was. Because you'd been told that Brandon Sanderson's prose was very simple. It's Oblique? very straightforward. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a it, good... Is that how you would describe a, it? Yeah, that's a good assessment of probably what I thought going in. I was probably more afraid that the characters would be too kind of cardboard and one-dimensional, which this early into a series, I think they all sort of feel that way until you right. spend some time with them. Uh, but I am seeing plenty of very encouraging signs, you know, now that we're 250 pages or so into this book or 300 pages, depending on what edition you have. I- I'm seeing some encouraging signs. I don't identify with any of the characters yet on the same level that I identified with Quoth at this stage. Right. Um, you know, or Bran Stark at this age, uh, at this stage of reading a Game of Thrones. But, you know, in the case particularly of a King Killer, we pretty much only spent time with Quoth. So, right. you know, here you're kind of having to split that up. There was also less overt world building that had to kind of be mm-hmm. thrown down. Right. Um, but what I can say is that my fear was that Brandon Sanderson's writing would be all about the magic mm-hmm. and all about the world building and that the characters would suffer as a result. And the first several chapters did not help that opinion. Mm-hmm. He's got some cool world building and some cool magic systems. I don't want to take that away, but I was just afraid that this was going to be about showcasing Mm -hmm. his magic system and showcasing his world building and that the characters would not be strong enough to keep my interest. So far, I've been pleasantly surprised. I do think that there's a lot of parts of the writing that's like, I re- but no, I really have to, but no, no, no. But I really have to tell you about how cool this was. Mm-hmm. Th- there's some of that. But I'm trying to to hold off on my opinion about that because I feel like I haven't seen anything yet that I didn't think was going to somehow be important. Yes, that was definitely one thing that I didn't care for when I started reading this series until... I got deeper into it and realized that all of those things that he seemed to just kind of be throwing out there, you know, to add it seemingly to add interest to the world actually all meant something later on down the line. Yeah. And I suspect, I suspect that as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, this seems like a, no, I really have to show you this cool thing sort of moment, but I get the sense that it's all going to come around. Right. No, it's not. It's, It's not all confection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and definitely Sanderson's characters take longer to develop, in my opinion, than some other series that we've read. Yeah, yeah. But they do develop. So, yeah, I've enjoyed it so far. It's awesome. um, It always feels so weird to be like, yeah, we're 300 pages in and say we're still early. We're very early. But but we are. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you think about this this story really being like like a nine thousand page story, yeah, really That's is what a it's going to be. Crazy. So, are you ready to get into some interactions? Let's interact. Let's do it. Hot off the presses, 
This comment came in as we were recording the episode. Get out. That's right. T, Earl Grey, hot, at bloody underscore curry on Twitter, said, listening to the D&D podcast, episode 59, life spren, too funny. <laughs> Someone gets it. Right. Nathan Hernandez says, I'm only a few chapters in and already... I want slash need an encyclopedia of all the races, cultures, items, and lore from The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. Can't wait for the next episode for the D&D podcast. Yes. Patrick Sponigle, at pa- who is Patrick Avenging Philanthropist Sponigle <laughs> at Patman23, says, I wanted to applaud your recent bonus podcast on Ready Player One. I also gave it uh, in the three range. It was a fine movie. I share chats, complain about all the secondary characters existing in service to this dude who really didn't earn it. Yep, that was a good assessment. Mm-hmm. Ian James Crone says, it was pretty much pop culture reference, the movie, for me. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, the book was kind of pop culture reference, the book. Yeah. I mean, it was a little bit, a little bit more. To there was it some other that. stuff there. Yeah. We had several conversations about the pronunciation, but I'm not going to get, not going to get into all How of that. How badly did we cock it up? Not too bad. No. Not too bad. We cocked it up just the perfect amount. Perfect cocking. Exactly. <laughs> Ian James Crone says, question for the next podcast. We'll answer it on the next podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what other geeky podcast does, do the Duke and Duchess recommend? Ooh, well, two that jump to my mind are... Um, Caster Quest. For uh, all your King Killer needs. Yes, they they are the the first and longest running King Killer Chronicle book club. Mandy over there is delightful. And um Paprika. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh Paprika actually is several different podcasts, um, all kind of put together by the same guy, but they cover uh, fantasy, sci-fi, uh, comic books movies tv a little bit broader range than we cover but that's a that's a that's a one that i really enjoy as well how about you i like oh my goodness so i when this came across i was like man i'm gonna have to like do some work and then i was like oh no i'm just gonna have to read from my phone (laughs) so like i can read you what's on my phone right now which will be a testament to you know what i'm actually listening to however there's going to be several podcasts on here that i've listen to all of them and so they're not on my phone anymore um but going through and just looking at my phone i've got girls gone canon which is a great a song of ice and fire one um i've got history of westeros podcast on here i've got nerdy bitches cast requests we talked about darts weekly magazine (laughs) (laughs) uh last podcast on the left is one of my favorite if you're into uh, true crime stuff, though, I have to warn you, as hilarious as it is, there have been a handful of them I couldn't, couldn't get through because they were just a little bit too dark for me. Um, oh No, Ross and Carrie is one of my favorites. Also, I've got uh, Boar's Gore and Sword on here. God, there's another 20 or 30 on here that I, I can't even get through. But those are sort of like the top ones that are in my heavy rotation. Another one that I'm enjoying listening to, if you like sort of like crass guy humor is taking the cynic route 
So that's a friend of ours podcast. I like that one quite a bit as well. So that those are all the nerdy ones I like. Radio Lab, big fan of Radio Lab. I listen to everything Dan Carlin puts out. All right. So I, I got I got a few. <laughs> you do. Spent, you have a lot more time to listen to podcasts. I spend a lot of time driving. Yeah. So. Yep. Patrick Sponigal also says, Fist of the North Star. <laughs> You're already dead. That 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 joke landed. I, I told you. Good on you. I know me some fists of the North Star. <laughs> we had several comments on our website. We actually went through a period of time where we weren't getting any comments on our website. And then all of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, we had a slew of them. Uh, Tina Kinnison says, sad. Yes. <laughs> Hi, Tina. <laughs> Uh, Brian McClure says, can't wait for the next podcast. And Brian Dana says, hey, I've been listening to your podcast at work, getting ready to start the Gentleman Bastard section. And I notice you guys are already on the Stormlight Archive. I really can't wait to hear Chad put on his tinfoil hat for this series. I may have to cheat a bit. Anyway, your podcast makes my work day into a smirk day. (laughs) So thanks. Oh, we're going to be friends. (laughs) (laughs) so over on the duke and duchess podcast group page on facebook first we have theo who shared a he's been sharing some of the images from the book i appreciate uh, that for us links that you can kind of zoom in i think for people with e-readers the images are tough to see sometimes yeah yeah which it is a shame because um not that they're plot critical, but they're beautifully done and definitely enhance the story. So you can check out a, a digital version of that image there. I tried to read the code of the Way of Kings. Right. I forget what that sl- that tile's called, yeah. but um, it, it was really difficult. I couldn't really make much of it out. Yeah. So Theo points out that the um, the year is 1173, according to the map at the end of chapter 17. And all of the near death quotes in part one are from 1171 and 1172. But the whole 4,500 years later thing had him assuming that they were from way back in the past. But they're actually yeah, yeah. from like current times. Well, the other thing that just crossed my mind when you said that is if the year is 1176 and 4,500 years in the past, something, you know, all this stuff happened. Well, something happened 1,176 years ago to cause them to restart the calendar. And what the hell was that event? So Theo's prediction, this is a good prediction, okay, is that the cinch on the horse wasn't meant to kill him, but the whole point was to make Elokar more paranoid. I, I 100% agree with that. Bum, bum, bum. So he thinks it's Sadius. I mean, he was right, but. <laughs> so Susan King um, responded. It's several very long comments. I'm not going to read them all, um, but she responded to Theo and they, they've gone back and forth a bit. Um, but one question she had was um, at one time, light eyes were lower than dark eyes or you can become a light eyes by winning a shard blade. But I thought the shard blade would disappear once the owner was down. I, I think just to clarify, a shard blade will disappear to be resummoned if you if a its bearer drops it. If the shard bearer dies, then it just becomes out there, up, inert, up for grabs. Yeah. 
She also uh, points out that the for her and this same thing happened to me too. The term Reshi, the, uh, the yeah. race of, of of there's a a race of people called the Reshi in this book, and I it just brings me into that King Killer mindset because that's what Bast calls Quoth in in King Killer. There's been a few of those. Yeah. So um, Dab Babalina says that um. He thought that it was simply a dark eye's possession of a shard blade that trumped the usual class distinction, but he wasn't sure. And that's then he what said, I "It's well. uh, yeah. like when I wear a suit and that's totally real and not a knockoff that I bought in Vietnam Rolex. I'm walking <laughs> to a Lexus dealership. I might actually be given the time of day by the sales staff. It's exactly. It's like the fantasy version of that, basically. Exactly. It's exactly <laughs> what it's like." Oh, Tina Kinnison says that she's totally with Liz about Kaladin's plan. Sorry, Duke. But Kaladin was right to try and build that endurance. Theo agreed with me and said (laughs) it was a total waste of time. Well, now we have to make Theo and Tina fight. I think it's I think they should. My money's on Tina. Sorry, Theo. (laughs) So Eric Algier, I I pronounce it different every time I (laughs) created a wonderful graphic that oh has my gosh. the evolution of Brandor. That's the crown this week for the funniest thing I've seen. So if you if you are not on our Facebook group page, you didn't get to see the the picture of Brandor that Daryl uh Mansell made for us after I accidentally called Brandon Sanderson Brandor a few Brandor! episodes ago. And it's just, it's turning into this whole thing. If you are not on that group page yet, I, I highly suggest searching it out. Tell them now how, how to get over there. So you can find it on facebook.com backslash groups backslash the DND group. Susan King also says on that group, uh, a very generous soul who is one of the six most important and loved people in my life sent me a hardback copy of this book. Sounds like an awesome bunch. They must be good people. I, I can now see the maps and illustrations. I'm all caught up. She also points out how interesting it is that magic has to be used for so much because this land is kind of devoid of natural resources. And and I do think that is, again, just one of the strengths of this book is is how it explores the relationship between people and the environment. Yeah, it also sort of puts the a little bit of a cap on the magic to some degree where it's, you know, it's needed for so many things that you can't just, you know, the re- the resources to, to power it sort of get gobbled up by all these other competing demands. So people aren't just throwing fireballs willy-nilly. So we also got two new reviews on iTunes. Oh, sweet. So we got an anonymous I five- love those iTunes reviews. I know, they're they're fantastic. We got an anonymous five-star review. So thank you for that. And we got another uh, review by Chaotic Chaotic, who says, quirky, charming, and systematic. Says, took me that's a few... Us. That's right. Always been very systematic. Took me a few episodes to get into it, but I really enjoyed the way the Duke and Duchess bring their relative points of view to bear on the Kingkiller Chronicle. I absolutely adore their reactions, theorizing, and rants, and also really appreciate the positivity they bring into their analysis and critiques of the content. Probably my favorite companion to reading the King Killer Chronicle itself. 
Thank you very much. Outstanding. We love it. I'm waiting for a person to come on here and be like, I liked it. You really got to get past the first five episodes, though. Like, <laughs> That's just how we feel about it. Uh, maybe, maybe. It's I, like you can't hear your own voice on like a voicemail or an answering machine. Uh, yeah, I hear you, but I've still listened to this <laughs> recently and... We've gotten a little better. Hey, we told you all the story of our, how we started podcasting. Yeah, we we laid it out there. Hey, we're going to suck at this for a while, and we were right. But I'm talking about how I walked into the living room, and you had two microphones set up and said... That's true. Hey, come here. <laughs> I did. <laughs> what uh, are we doing? It's a podcast. Oh. <laughs> okay. Sit down. <laughs> I've never listened to a podcast before. Oh, Fun times. I thought only nerds did that. Yes, that's right. And we, <laughs> we belong to that group. We have one more very important thing we need to do before we can close the door on episode 61. Stop laughing at me over there, you. <laughs> and that is our predictions. Oh, right. Predictions. Lay them on me. All right. So prediction number one. I think the Parshendi are able to travel under the Alethi's noses mm. by traveling below the surface of the plains through the chasms themselves. All right. I sort of get this. Um, this is also sort of a prediction, sort of. I get this Fremen vibe very much from the Parshendi, mm-hmm. uh, specifically in that they're harboring some sort of huge secret. They worship the chasm fiends just like the Fremen worship the sandworms. Mm-hmm. And I think they know something the rest of the world doesn't know. I also think they have a secret way of traveling nobody knows about, which kind of already talked about. I feel like the concept that they worship the chasm fiends might actually be misplaced and that there's something else that they worship that lives below the ground or is below the ground. Don't really know about that. Uh, the obvious one here, uh, my my easy softball, Kaladin is unknowingly using Stormlight when he fights. Okay. All right, so here is another. Here's my conspiracy theorist wheels starting to turn, right? Okay. So I think the Parshendi have several spies among the Alethi. It would not at all shock me if it's the Parshmen themselves. But either way, there are several spies that they have i think the king's girth was cut i'm with theo i don't think it was with the intention to kill him i think the chull was fed something strange that caused or done something strange to it to cause it to act weird and i think the rope holding the pig at the bottom was cut so i think there were several things that somebody had to do to make all that happen and i feel like there was more to it than just the girth. You know, there were more steps to that. I think that Spren are not actually real. I think mm. somebody put acid in the creme. <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> I like it. All right. I think the broken one resides in the origin and the storms are his anger at the heralds and their betrayal. Oh, good one. And my last one is I think the weird sayings 
our memories from the shattering of the plane, perhaps even invoked by invisible death spren. Mm. You're getting good at this. Those are my predictions. I like it. All right. You can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast dot com. You can find us on Twitter at the D and D podcast. That's D as in David as N as in Nancy D as in David podcast on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess on our Facebook group page by searching the Duke and Duchess podcast group or by going backslash groups backslash the D and D group. You can find us on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess podcast. If you have a question, if you need advice around tax time, you really want to know why somebody would ever play an F with a raised 11th, ask the Duchess at advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. That's about all we have time for tonight. Good night, everybody. Good night. It was stanky. Ew. Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Stank like Chris Pine's butthole. Damn it, Chad. I was trying to sound professional. We can't have that. And I bet Chris Pine's butthole smells like roses. All right. (laughs) I bet it smells like cinnamon buns. I think it smells like King Biscuit flour. <laughs> I'm saying he has a white doughy ass. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> From the top. <laughs> <sighs> These jokes relax <laughs> and center me. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to be classy tonight. <laughs> drinking a LaCroix. I'm drinking a passion fruit LaCroix. I'm drinking Earl Grey. Instead Grey. of a Capri Sun. Yeah. Stabbing it up a notch. Drinking Earl Grey tea. <clears throat> you are. Earl Grey was a rapist. Is that... What? <laughs> what? He was. Way to ruin a perfectly good tea. I mean, he had amazing taste in teas but Chopin was a brilliant pianist but unfortunately he liked to use his little pianist too much and you can't take the good without the bad I'm saying Earl Grey was as complex as the notes in the bouquet of his tea from the top Go ahead. (laughs) Do you want me to do it? Or do you like to be in control? 
I actually have to go to the bathroom again. 